0: Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. A special thank you to our sponsor, Equathrive. This one goes out to all the horses with the crusty necks, fleshy backs, and girthy middles. The horses who gain a few extra pounds simply by breathing air. The Easy Keepers on Limited Pastures. The folks at Equithrive know there is nothing easy about Easy Keepers. That's why they have formulated products just for you. Equithrive's Metaborol is a pelleted supplement that is scientifically proven to support healthy metabolic function and a healthy inflammatory response in horses. It's bona fide joint and metabolic support all-in-one easy-to-feed pellet. Visit Equithrive.com today and use the promo code Hoof to get 20% off your first order, plus free shipping. www.equithrive.com. I'll be honest, when I first saw posts from Sherry Nolden on Facebook, I was really skeptical. She had an entire herd of Norwegian fjords living on pasture 24-7, and I was convinced that these horses had to be laminitic or foundering. There's no way that an easy keeper breed could live out on pasture and be okay. The more I followed her posts and the more I learned about growing safer grass for horses that are typically easy keepers, the more I wanted to reach out to Sherry to see if she would talk to me about how she manages her horses. Sherry conducted PhD research in animal and dairy science at UW-Madison. She has a master's in agroecology. She has degrees based on grasslands, grazing systems, livestock health, parasites. Basically, many things that can contribute to whether a horse's system is functioning properly and healthy and in a way that can support them living on grass. Now, before we start this conversation, I cannot stress enough, please don't listen to this and go toss all your limited courses out on pasture. Please, please, please talk to your veterinarian and your hoof care provider and Maybe reach out to Sherry and talk to them before you try to graze your horses, especially if they haven't been on grass. This conversation is based on allowing healthy horses safely graze pasture in a way that will sustain the land and ideally keep these feet healthy. Why don't we get started and you can tell me how you became interested in pasture
1: management. Sure. Um... Well, I I have always kept horses in my backyard. I've never had the opportunity to have horses in a barn or a fancy stable. Part of that was just because we didn't have the funds to be able to do that when I was a kid. And my grandparents had horses on big acreage in Kansas. So that was just kind of the model that I saw as a kid. And then as I got older, in college, keeping my own horses, again, boarding them at somebody else's barn was more expensive than uh, owning a farm or renting a farm uh, that had space to have the horses managed on pasture. And so as I got older and, and learned that people had trouble keeping their horses on pasture, my, in- my interest in pasture <laughs> became increased because I didn't understand what troubles they were running into because I I really hadn't experienced those troubles with the horses that I had, and I had easy keeper types. So a lot of the stuff that I was doing was managing them in a way that maintained their health, but without any kind of mechanistic understanding of what I was doing. I was only, I was doing what worked for them, not necessarily because somebody told me that this is how it was supposed to be done. And then when I went to college, I got a a bachelor's degree in wildlife ecology and was obviously interested in uh, natural systems, ecosystems, the way wildlife interact with their environment and what promotes optimal health with those wildlife populations. I did some veterinary science research on prion diseases and uh, transmission between scavengers and cows for like mad cow disease. And did a master's degree in agroecology, studying goats for brush management and looked at even more in depth, some information on how livestock can interact with their environment. And during that time, I got small ruminants for the first time and um, I've had them ever since. So it's been 22 years since I've had small ruminants now in addition to the horses, which have been around for, uh, I've been breeding fjords for 31 years now. So adding them in and some cows and chickens and observing how those animals also interact with their environment and with other species gave me some more mechanistic understanding and um, than I did. I worked on a PhD in animal and dairy sciences on parasites in pastured uh, livestock and again, more understanding. (laughs) But understanding from the ruminant world instead of the, the horse world. And basically what I saw being talked about and discussed in managing ruminants is very applicable to managing horses. And and it's what I've been doing all these years with horses, but without understanding that that's what I was doing. And I think a lot of the the challenges that horse owners run into is what they are told or how they are told to raise their horses is very different than what a typical grass-based farmer would be presented with on how to raise their their horses when it comes to pasture management and animal health and all that sort of thing. It's just a different approach, and I think that's where some people run into problems. And so my interest in pasture management and talking about it online and, and uh, discussing and writing papers for people to read about this topic has come out of me just trying to help other people understand what I've found that works and why I think it works and, and what the mechanism is behind what's going on with our easy keepers on pasture versus what other people are running into with challenges for their own horses on pasture.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk about that because, you know, as a hoof care provider, one of my biggest issues that I run into, especially in the New England area right now, is laminitic problems. And a lot of times we just, like, automatically blame that on the grass, obviously, because that's the first thing that that changes this time of year. So you have, you know, basically the notoriously – one of the easiest keeper breeds that I know of, and they're kept on grass. So what are you doing – you know, how are you – like working that pasture management to prevent laminitic issues and keep your horses healthy and your, your land and pasture healthy.
1: Yeah. So there again, I didn't just like step out and do something different to be different, but I've realized that I've do things differently by joining a lot of the, the groups and on Facebook and in other places and reading about all these problems that people have with their horses on pasture. And Then backing into trying to identify what it is I do differently that other people aren't doing. And I think there are some differences that I've identified um, with our pasture management than what I typically see in other people's um, approaches. And one of them isn't so much pasture management as it is horse management. And that is always having the horses have free choice access to food, no muzzles, no. Uh, hay nets, nothing to slow their access down. They learn to moderate their intake and they learn that they can select the types of foods that they need for their body from what's available to them. And part of that is providing them with the diversity that they need and should have access to in order to balance their diet. So if the entire pasture system is really immature, short forages, they need some fiber. They need access to a bale of hay or a, an area of pasture that has tall, stocky, uh, lignus-type material that they can go eat some of that higher fiber material and balance out the fast passage rate, quick digestion, low lignin content, immature forages that are in front of them. And that's a lot of what we see in the springtime as those those flushy forages. In the cow world, they would say that, that would you would see splat manure, where when the manure hits the ground, it like uh, splatters instead of making a pie. And that's just because it has high protein and passes through the system really fast, is very digestible, and is lacking in, in fiber. And so the fiber is what slows it down going through the system. And if the animals have access to that fiber, then they they um, typically don't have laminitis issues. But we also don't meal feed. So I feel like so, between giving the horses access to forage all the time so that they never feel like they're out of food, we also don't give them big boluses of more digestible types of food. We don't feed grain, uh, we don't feed balancers. We give them access to a mineral bar where they can choose the minerals that they need, uh, loose, free choice minerals, but it's not in any kind of a feeding approach where it's given twice a day, or they're not looking forward to gorging on whatever some new uh, unique food item is that they're going to get at a certain time of day. And so you don't get this big slug of whatever strange food in the mix of the other things that they are eating throughout the day with the way that we manage ours. And we don't do things on timing. We don't turn animals out for a certain period of time and then bring them back in because that causes them to gorge. If they're going to gorge on something, then that's going to be more likely to give them a laminitis event because they're going to eat a huge amount of whatever the thing is that they haven't had access to. And often that is a less mature, easily digested, high sugar, blood sugar spiking, insulin inducing type food source. And if you manage the horses say that they don't have those times of day or meals or periods where they're going to go gorge on something, their blood glucose just stays more levels throughout the day because they're eating more like a wild horse would, where they have periods where they sleep during the day, periods where they're eating, but they choose when those times are. The humans don't choose when those times are. In the wild, the predators might influence when those times are. and But those those, I think, are the Kind of the main difference is we also have a huge phytochemical diversity in our forages because we don't plant just a handful of species of pasture plants. We have the normal pasture plants that work here, plus all the wild plants that want to live there, plus trees and shrubs and the plants that grow in the woodlands on the edges of our pasture. And so the horses eat all of those different things, including bark, and get a lot of different plant chemicals that that help with insulin management, they're antioxidant, they're anthelmintic, antiviral, anti-inflammatory. Those phytochemicals are really good. And some people provide herbs to their horses for that reason. And the dried herbs can provide some of that too. But again, we don't feed in any kind of measured amount. If, If the horse wants to eat some type of herb, they're going to eat whatever they want of it, not what the human decides the horse needs. We don't overgraze our pastures, so we don't graze them very short. And when the horses are getting down into that very close area to the ground, the the stem of the plant has more starch in it. And so that's kind of like feeding grain. We don't want the horses getting into the section of the plants where they're depleting the plant of its storage carbohydrates because then the plants can't grow back and during the resting period of our rotational grazing approach to grow their their leaves back so that it can be grazed again. Um, we don't uh, do a lot of chemicals with our horses, so we aren't um, deworming frequently. We aren't vaccinating frequently. We don't spray them with bug spray. We have dung beetles that help with, with parasite management and fly management in our pastures because of that. Um, We don't feed grain that's been sprayed with glyphosate or various other chemicals in the process of growing those grains. Uh, Our pastures and our hay fields are not sprayed with any kind of chemicals to get rid of weeds or molds or any of that sort of thing. Our hay is just put up dry. We don't spray it with any kind of desiccant. So the exposure our horses have to chemicals is very low relative to what other horses may have, uh, living in more conventional approaches to horse management these days. We keep our horses in herds so their stress levels are low, and I think that has a lot to do with laminitis also. When our soils are really wet, we'll lock the horses into a lane. I designed our operation before I ever heard about Paddock Paradise or EquiCentral, but what we do is more similar to EquiCentral, central I would say, than Paddock Paradise, even though we have a central lane. We don't have a perimeter track because that takes up too much acreage and we value our acreage for feeding our horses. And we also use the pasture during the summer as a grazing and food source such that we're hardly ever feeding any hay during the summer, which is the dif- a difference from Paddock Paradise But also different than um, aquaculture because ours are always on pasture where we just rotate. We move the fences so that they have access to a new area every two to three days. So they're not in any paddock any longer than two to three days. And then the paddock rests for, oh, 20 to 40 days, depending on how fast it grows back, the weather conditions we have. And we're looking to get those plants to like a four- leaf stage or more. It takes two and a half leaf stage before the plant has regrown its root system after it's been grazed. So we don't want to destroy the plant, exhausted of its root reserves. Um, but we also want to produce enough lignus material that the horses aren't eating the high quality of forage that you would expect to feed to a, a fattening steer. That's a different management approach than what you would do with cattle.
0: And so when you... um talk sorry when you talk about the the leaf stages and this is something that when we talked before I was kind of unsure because I hadn't really like looked at grass and when we talked before it was in January and the grass was very dormant so now I'm starting to realize like if I go out to my field and like pick up a blade of grass I can see the little offshoots of like I guess they're leaves I just never thought of them as leaves because I think of leaves (laughs) as like leaves on a tree so so you're just looking to, to you know pick up a blade of grass and see like four leaves growing off of that stem.
1: Yeah, so um, if you if you pull a leaf off of a grass plant at the base, there usually if it's an older stalk of grass, it's going to have probably a yellow leaf near the bottom, and that yellow leaf isn't one that you would count. You count the collared leaves, and so as the as a grass plant grows, it starts out with one leaf coming out of the ground, and that leaf shoots off to the side as the next leaf comes out of the center of that grass stalk, and and shoots up and then it develops a collar at its base and another leaf shoots up out of that. So you count the number of collared leaves and at the very top of the plant, you'll see often two, maybe three uh, little spikes of grasses coming out of the center of the, the stalk. Those aren't counted as leaves until they fully have a collar. And so four collared leaves, four to five collared leaves. And then after that, most of the grass species, so it's different by species, but We don't, we, since we manage a pasture full of all kinds of different species, we're looking at the composite of what's out there, not just one species of grass. Orchard grass tends to be the one that we hone in on because it's one of the ones that's more sensitive to overgrazing. And it's also one that produces a lot of tonnage of, of fairly lignous material. So the cow people don't like it because it tends to be one that the the cows want to refuse to eat, but that's great for horses. Right. So we typically manage for the the species that are more sensitive. Now the species that's less sensitive would be something like Kentucky bluegrass. And it's short, grows very tight to the ground. And even when it's fairly mature, it's still rather digestible and fairly low lignin compared to like orchard grass. But you can graze the snot out of that stuff. It's a turf type grass and it comes back and it creates a carpet. It's great for holding soil in place. And it's Typically, around where we live, what predominates in overgrazed horse pastures because it's the only thing that can survive that intensity of grazing that the owners have chosen to put on that land by managing their horses in the way that they manage them. If you manage the horses in more of a rotational system and don't overgraze, then you get forages like orchard grass that can grow and produce a lot of tonnage and support many more horses per acre than what you can if you overgraze and just have a monoculture of. Kentucky bluegrass and clover which is what would grow around here if you if you overgraze but but our pastures would get up to be hip high waist high easily if we let them get fairly mature and that's not that's not fully mature that's just the plants going into probably some of them would be in like six seven eight leaf stage and elongation but not flowering yet and so the, as the grass plant matures, it produces more leaves and then sends up a stalk. And it's the stalk is elongating as each new leaf comes up. The distance between leaves increases, so it's elongating. And in order to support that elongation, it increases the lignin content of its cell walls to support uh, the plant so it doesn't just flop over, so it stays standing. That lignin is indigestible to to a horse, and so... That allows for a slower passage rate, which reduces the amount that a horse can eat overall, because they have a physiological fill capacity that they just can't shove any more in once they're full. And people would say, "Well, they're going to colic if they eat that high dense or that high lignin grass." Um, they don't. We've been doing this for years, and they just—we don't have issues with colic. We don't have horses that founder. They manage that just fine. And some people say, "Well, mine can't." It, it just will overeat and my question is have you tried giving them access to very lignous material in a setting where you can watch and just let them eat for a month on this highly lignous material and learn what their body tells them and and give them the opportunity to feel full and let if there's some kind of um leptin receptors that are dysfunctional, perhaps they will start working again if given that opportunity. But I've rarely seen where people have actually given their horse the opportunity to, to eat that high leaf stage plant. And when they do get into that higher leaf stage, obviously the, the quality of the forage is declining because they can't digest it. It's stuff that passes through and becomes manure but it passes through at a slower rate than the highly digestible forages. And so overall, they can't get as many calories per day when they're consuming a high lignin-type forage. And that's where it, it makes it actually quite easy to cause a easy keeper to lose weight. You just feed them a more lignous material, more lignous hay, to the point of it almost being like straw. And you balance that. I mean, the, the classic would be to get a a forage analysis and just have a mineral mix and vitamin mix made. And you need amino acids too, because the highly ligninous material is also lower in protein. But balance that with a balancer and they fill themselves up and they're happy and content and they lose weight at the same time. If we have fjords that that get too fat, we just stick them in a, a dry lot area, either a winter sacrifice lot or in our lane, which induces movement. That's another thing that is important with our pasture management system is we make our horses move at least a quarter mile between their food, their water, and their minerals. And because of that, they exercise that helps maintain their hooves. I do the trimming on our horses and I don't have to trim nearly as often as most people do because they're wearing their hooves down naturally by moving. And that keeps them Their body's healthy, their hooves healthy, keeps their metabolisms going. And so all of these things all fit together in just keeping the horse healthy. And we don't have a huge, I mean, we own 130 acres and we manage actually 200, around 200 acres because we rent fields to put up our own hay in order to to manage the quality because most people put too high quality hay up. So we want hay that we put up that is diverse and hasn't had chemicals on it and is in a greater maturity stage when it's cut than what the average cow people want to put the, the the hay up as. And that's what many horse people have access to buy is over overly digestible, higher quality forage that's meant for cattle and not what's meant for horses. And they typically are buying something that has maybe two grass species in it, no legumes, no diverse other plant in in that hay mix. So anyway, our our back to pasture, our official pasture is only 30 acres and we're supporting 40 horses, up to 45 horses on 30 acres during the summer without feeding them hay. And ro- because we're rotationally grazing and we aren't overgrazing, we're giving those pastures time to rest between grazing bouts, there's a diversity of plants out there, and these are breed mares and foals and the stallion that wow. uh, are out there living on that acreage. And in our area, so the NRCS or most government agencies will have, land management agencies will have some kind of guideline for how many animals per acre you should be able to support based on your soil type. And they would say, you need two to two and a half acres per horse here, and we are Supporting far more. I think we have like 0.75. Let's see, we have, well, 45 horses on 30 acres. So we're definitely way more horses per acre than what the government would say could be supported. And that's based on our management choices. Uh, If we set stocked horses here, like is common with most grazing equine operations. Yeah, we'd probably need two to two and a half acres per horse. And so by by managing differently, we can support more horses in a sustainable manner on the same acreage. And we don't have all that acreage being made bare in various areas. So the water isn't just running off and eroding soil away. The grasses are feeding the microbes and creating soil structure. And so we have a a nice sponge of topsoil that has correct aggregation and functionality of minerals and water holding capacity. So we're keeping more water here and on the land. And for us, that's important because we're up in the top of the watershed. We're not in a wetland. We're not down in a low area. I have managed horses in clay soils in a wet area, and I have managed horses in a watershed dam basin on our farm in Kansas. And So you can do it. It's just adapting your management strategies to meet the needs of horses and the land to produce as much forage as you can from the land for the horses to eat. And then managing the horse's access to that forage such that it keeps them healthy, which is basically keeping the forages more mature, not overgrazing them, not leaving the horses in one location too long, letting them have a diversity of food types to eat and making them move around and be part of their herd and have their normal, healthy social structure.
0: A special thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Cavallo. For our humble hoof listeners, they are offering 20% off their Cavallo Trek hoof boots using the coupon code HRN at checkout. The Trek is the world's most popular and versatile hoof boot and Cavallo's toughest trail boot while also doubling as an option for therapy or rehab. The front closure system makes it easily adaptable to various hoof shapes and the TPU upper design allows for maximum strength while minimizing weight for the comfort and ease of movement for your horse. These are recommended by vets and trainers and also loved as transport boots by barrel racers, ship jumpers, dressage riders, and everyone in between. Again, for 20% off a pair of Treks, use the code HRN at checkout at cavallo-inc.com. Yeah, and and so one thing that you have mentioned a few times is like the diversity of the plant life. And that's something Mm -hmm. that I've become so much more interested in because I know that here, at least in Massachusetts, there's this like obsession with like these beautiful, perfect, like monoculture type lawns of like, of great, you know, grazing quote unquote. And I'm more interested in finding out like how I can diversify my land and also like what that looks like in different regions. So are there resources to know what you can plant in different regions to or you know how to to best do that in a field so that the horses are getting different kinds of plants
1: yeah and there again just like I've looked I've not looked to the equine literature for guidance on how to do better with what I've been doing I've looked to other sources for that kind of information whether they be um, nutritional and agronomic sources that were more designed for cattle, but viewing them through the lens of horse management, or like for the diversity of plants that you're talking about, what did the Native Americans use for beneficial plants in your area? Those generally are not going to be too toxic for horses to have access to, and they're going to be beneficial for the same, generally for the same ailments that your horses have that the humans would have used them for. And those are going to vary by the places that all these that all the people live that keep their horses in those places. So in uh, a desert area, there's going to be a totally different plant community that would be useful to the horses versus in Massachusetts or in Wisconsin or Kansas. And we don't all need to be planting the same plants and maintaining certain plants for the horses, but they will use what grows in their environment. What do the wildlife in the area Go seek and eat when they're feeling sick, or to help them maintain uh, natural health. Help them maintain low levels of parasites in their in their GI system. And that's another thing: is having raised sheep and goats. I very quickly learned to understand that parasites can be deadly uh, in horses. They rarely are, but in studying for my PhD on parasite management, I also realized that parasites are part of the normal gut biome of animals of wildlife of species outside of typical human management and they produce benefits to the host in terms of immune modulation and if we remove those parasites completely then the horses have autoimmune issues and allergy issues and same way with the goats and sheep and every other species out there so we don't intentionally try and knock out all the parasites from our animals but they have. we provide them with plants in their environment that are anthelmintic, that have tannins, have terpenoids, have uh, nicotine in them. Things that the parasites can't tolerate, but don't toxify the horses when they they choose to eat the amount of whatever that plant that they want to eat. And every region around the country or world is going to have different plants that have actually fairly similar phytochemicals. Often it's different species of similar genus of plants that's been there around the environment. But again, to find those plants, talking to your local botanical enthusiasts, the, the, the folks that go out on flower walks, the folks that are interested in the native species of the area, those plants are, are typically full of phytochemicals and they're naturally adapted to the environment where you live. And the horses, if they're available in the environment for the horses, the horses will eat them. As they need them, and they won't. A lot of people say, "Well, the horses don't know what they need," and so we have to control what they have access to. And the problem with that is we don't really know what they need. I mean, we we the NRC is great and is full of research, but it's very controlled, reductionist type research that often was done with a very controlled diet, and there isn't any information in there on how to manage forages uh, in a diverse system for horses. It's like what you said. You see management in monoculture, highly groomed fields that look like slightly long golf courses and horses grazing out there. And so there's a lot of information that we don't know, but the animals have the ability. And through research done by Dr. Fred Provenza, we know that animals can listen to their gut biofeedback after they eat something sometimes it's as quick as nerve receptors in their mouth that are telling their brain okay this is something that the body needs or the the body is responding positively to and then the horse will eat more of that thing or the horse senses that that plant is not something that is beneficial to their health and so they don't eat any more of it where we run into problems is if the pasture is full of a monoculture of some particular weed that actually has a secondary compound that's bad for the horses, and they don't have any other choices of what to eat, but they're hungry, therefore they go eat, overeat the things that are bad for them. So we want to provide diversity, but we also want the majority of the forages out there to be what they need as their base diet. And then the herbs are, in addition to that, not a monoculture or a, just a An area that they can't select the basic maybe 10 to 50 species of uh, grasses and legumes and things that they would normally eat as their base diet. And then they eat little bits of these phytochemical type uh, containing forages at the times that their body lets them know that that tastes good, therefore they need it. Or that doesn't taste good, therefore they're avoiding that
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And honestly, it's something where I I agree with you, like either there's not a lot of research, because I've been looking around for this, either there's not a lot of research on anything from like mineral supplementation or feeds or things like that, or what what has been researched has sort of, you know, had the horses on a very specific management style. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something where I've talked about, you know, because of the setup I have here, if I can do some sort of research where, you know, we look at in a different kind of management, having 24 seven access to forage and looking at, you know, supplementing different things and what that does. And um, I just think there's so much unknown. And it's so funny, because obviously, what you're doing is so different than what is is so often taught. And I think initially, that means a lot of people kind of are are nervous about it, or or sort of fear that it's going to cause problems. But obviously, it hasn't. (laughs) Hasn't for you, which is amazing.
1: Um, well, it, yeah, and I mean, i I've taken some equine courses too, and I, I just keep my mouth closed in the classes because they're taught by professors who are very certain that they they know the way to do things. and And my contention is always, well, there's always other ways to do things, and what is often taught is very different than what you would see wild horse populations doing. And they're not eating monocultures. They're walking a lot. They're staying in a herd. I was in I took two Equine Repro classes and profess those professors in both of those classes, one was at K-State, one was at University of Wisconsin, said, You should not pasture breed horses. They will injure themselves. And <laughs> we stick our stallions out with our mares and the mares have babies at their side and the stallions breed the mares as they come into heat and I can go out there and stand right next to the stallion, free without a halter or chains, and mare's not sedated. She's not chained up. She's not tied to a wall. The baby isn't sequestered somewhere, and she's not straining because she can't see her baby or is worried about her baby being far away from her. And they just breed naturally, and I can be out there right next to them, and it's not dangerous. The animals trust us, and they enjoy us being around, and they're just doing their natural thing, and. Us humans are always typically trying to control things more than we need to um is my perspective we We don't have to control things at the level that we think we do, and when we let go, things actually improve they get easier they the animal health gets better, but it's just working at letting things do things naturally, letting the horses the grass the the water on the land the insects that are beneficial to us like dung beetles helping us control intestinal parasites and and uh fly face flies and all that sort of thing just letting those things work together instead of pumping chemicals through the horses or spraying chemicals on them to control the, the parasites and the flies and um that sort of thing so the, but these things aren't typically taught especially in the horse realm They're they're more taught in wildlife ecology Um, especially if you're trying to manage a wildlife species in a zoo setting, trying to meet all of the needs of those animals. So looking to these other literature sources typically applies back to what can be done in horses. Um, But we don't want to just, I mean, like I was saying before, we don't want to try to control the four, like the, um, herbs that we would give to the horses because, again, there's you can harvest a plant at a, the same time every year from the same place, and it's going to have a different phytochemical content between years. Even, and even if you followed phenology, you looked at the growing degree days that you match that to the amount of time. So each year has different amounts of solar energy that the plants are exposed to, and that determines their growth rate more so than date on the calendar. And plants respond to disturbances in their environment with these phytochemicals because they're defense mechanisms for the plant against herbivory and insect damage and crushing and that sort of thing. And so whatever that plant has had in its prior growing period in terms of damage or stress will indicate the amount of whatever phytochemicals it normally produces to protect itself. So if you... If you have a set of herbs, you have no idea what phytochemical composition those herbs have unless they've been lab tested. And so dosing, it's impossible to say what dose to give because one, we don't know what a lot of those phytochemicals in their complete form in the plant do in the body of the horse. We don't know exactly what that individual horse needs for those phytochemicals. And we don't know the content of phytochemicals in those plants at the time that they were harvested in that batch that we have in our hand. So trying to control things like that is really expensive and time consuming and that sort of thing. And way easier to just let the horse sample it and decide how much of it their body tells them they need.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so like that kind of goes to my next question, like because this is like so different than what maybe most people or how most people manage their horses. Obviously since a lot of horses are kept maybe in a a lot where like a dry lot or a space where the grass is like really short. And if, if they, if a horse owner were just to like let their horse out on like a nice, mature, lush grass field, um, like you were talking about how they might be more, more, uh, willing to gorge at that time like how do you how would an owner start to transition to this kind of horse keeping and not have like run into issues do you like slowly transition them onto the more mature grass
1: we have not even though it's commonly recommended to slowly like do hand walking or hand grazing or limited time turnout initially in spring we don't do that i never have and the reason is Our horses um, are free fed. They have as much hay to eat as they want to eat and they fill themselves and they know to eat what they need. And so, and they also have, if you observe horses and they have free access to food, they have times of the day when they eat more and then times of the day when they're sleeping and digesting and not eating. So typically in the spring, like we haven't turned our horses out yet, our forages were at three leaf stage days ago i should go look at what they're at what it's at now because we've had two days of like 80 degrees which will grow grass very quickly so we could be approaching the time that's their four to five leaf stage and getting ready to turn them out i let the horses eat we don't so like i said we don't meal feed we don't put hay out every morning we put hay out once a week big brown bales in feeders and they eat that down and we re- we fill up the feeders again once they've eaten those down but they have a period during the morning where they're, the entire herd is focused on eating intensely, and so they're eating their dry hay. And then around 11 o'clock, they're done. They're, they're sleeping. They're full. And that's when we would turn them out on grass, and then they'd be out on grass for the rest of the summer. And we just open the gates to a, a small paddock. Um, that we've decided is at the maturity stage for the majority of the forages that are out there that we want. And so we give them access to that, and they get all excited and run out there. But they can't shove themselves, they can't gorge, they can't shove themselves full of food, this more digestible food than what they've been eating in their their dry hay feeder because their gut is full of hay. They're they're standing there sleeping because they're digesting because they're full. So they don't have the opportunity to gorge. They don't have the opportunity to cause a huge blood sugar spike and in insulin response because they're full. And it takes time for that that um, lignus hay to pass through the GI system and open space for the more digestible forages that they have out there. Now that'll happen throughout the day, but because the horses already know that they only can put so much in their system, they'll eat a little bit of of the new green grass and then stand around and digest that and then eat some more. And then usually that evening they'll go back to the dry hay and eat some dry hay because they've overeaten on the grass and their body, their, their microbes don't like too much fleshy green grass. So they want more fiber to balance that protein out and they listen to their microbes just like all the other livestock do, and um, the microbes are the ones that are di- digesting that lignous material for them. It's not their own body digesting that. So they eat what the microbes want, and they'll go eat some more dry grass and then go dry hay and then go back and eat some more pasture, and they choose the amount of time that they spend out there. But we don't get tender hooves. We don't get lameness because our horses are – they know – they, they are turned out when they're full and they, aren't, they know that they're not going to be taken off and therefore they don't overeat. A lot of horses, when they know that they only have a certain amount of time out in a more desirable forage type because their human is going to come take them back in after 15 minutes, they're going to eat faster and more intensely than they would if they know that they are just going to stay out there. And all of ours have learned, even even the ones that we bought that came to us fat and had been on restricted diets in dry lots and that sort of thing, they they learned that they don't have forage restricted and therefore they don't have to gorge. And when they don't gorge, you don't run into those problems.
0: Wow, yeah. I mean, that sound this sounds super interesting and a little bit like, you know, I'm a little nervous to try this because I have some horses that I think would do really well. And I'm just trying to figure out the best way. Also, just, you know, there's so much more research I want to do, like we were talking about with like biodiversity and those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess for like kind of my, my final question, because I know we, we could talk forever. And I think it would be great to even maybe do like another podcast episode where we talk about sure. more specific things. But um, would you have any like last minute advice for an owner that's really interested in maybe wants to like jump into learning more about this?
1: Um, from I guess from the horse management standpoint, getting the horses used to eating all of what they need or like all, as much um, forage as they want is I think the thing that I've seen that most people seem to struggle with. And the reason that they seem to struggle with that is they, they don't feel like they have access to the right quality of forage. They say, well, if my horse eats all that it wants, it gets too fat. And my contention is that's because the forage you're feeding is too high de- high quality. It needs to be lower digestibility. And if it's low enough digestibility, they can eat all they want and lose weight. Uh, it, so forage testing is really important. Get your forage tested. If you're feeding your horse free choice hay and the horse is getting fat, then the forage test results that you see on that test paper are going to inform you that you need to buy lower quality hay or you need to mix in straw with the hay that you have access to, and you can typically buy straw, feeding straw, from uh, mostly, it's typically fed to dairy animals because they're feeding super high quality other forages mixed in with straw to get the the fiber, physically effective fiber, into the diet of those animals. So those are typically available, but most horse people don't realize that. Or buy CRP forage, Mm -hmm. and since they're typically in separate batches, you can... Uh, send it through a leaf chopper and chop the straw up and chop the hay up into one inch, two inch pieces and mix it together so that the horses can't very easily separate out or sort out the less digestible parts from the highly digestible parts of the forage and make that mixture such that the horses can eat that free choice and uh, either maintain weight or lose weight and get them get them to the place where they know that they're not going to be short of forage and are consuming what they need and then you can uh, turn them out when they're full and onto mature forages and that's the approach that um, that i've seen that works but if if they're still being hand-fed or they think that they have restrictions then you run into those gorging problems so think about the management approach that you have and what how the horses are responding to that management with their behavior and modify the management so that you're getting the kind of behavior that is health promoting for those animals. So, I mean, that's that's the main thing that I've seen that's different from the biggest thing that we've seen that is different than what we do in the majority of horses out there. And then it's really important for people to take a holistic approach to the management of their horses don't try and like identify one small thing to change and be like make that change and then say oh this doesn't work because i just i made that change and and now this doesn't work it's a it's a whole approach a an approach that is treating the horse in a more natural way and that's what allows them to be successful in a grazing system where they don't they aren't removed from the grazing system sure you can remove them to go riding or go do something with them But, I mean, that one hour out of the day, the rest of their 23 hours, they can be out on pasture and just being a horse with a herd and manage them in a way that they aren't inclined to have the problems that more confined type horses uh, typically have as a result of that management. There, I mean, there are resources out there and um, joining the groups out there that have people who have experience in doing these sorts of things and answering questions is a good way to to do that. And that, the Equicentral group and the Paddock Paradise groups, I, I think are probably the closest that I've seen to what we do. I mean, they're still different than what we do, but um, it's closer. So that would be the main tips, I would say. And, and do, just do that forage testing and, and know what you're feeding and giving the horses access to what they need.
0: Awesome. I think this is so great, and I have like a million other questions. But I, I usually, okay. but I might follow up with some other questions, or maybe you know we could do another interview because you know. Sure. Um, I think there's just so much to learn on this topic for somebody who's like very new to it. And, and especially people who are listening who this is going to be like a totally new idea. All right. Well, this has been so great and I've been, you know, wanting to do this for a while. I just had to get my feet back under me from moving. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate your time. And I think this was so great. So thank you so much for being willing to do this.
1: Yeah. Thanks for your interest. And I hope the information is helpful to horse managers and owners out there for, the benefit of themselves and their
0: horses oh yeah i'm sure it will be all right well i hope you have a great rest of your friday and i'll i'll talk to you soon yep talk to you later right. <laughs> Bye bye. i always say that i'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person and chances are if you're listening to a hoof care podcast you are too so we should probably be friends feel free to find me on facebook or email me
1: at the humble hoof at gmail.com